Section 18 of Institutes of the Christian Religion. Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion. Book 2. By John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 8. Part 5 ninth commandment thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor forty seven the purport of the commandment is since god who is truth abhors falsehood we must cultivate unfeigned truth towards each other the sum therefore will be that we must not by calumnies and false accusations injure our neighbor's name or by falsehood impair his fortunes in fine that we must not injure any one from petulance or a love of evil speaking to this prohibition corresponds the command that we must faithfully assist every one as far as in us lies in asserting the truth for the maintenance of his good name and his estate the lord seems to have intended to explain the commandment in these words thou shalt not raise a false report put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness keep thee far from a false matter exodus chapter twenty three verses one and seven in another passage he not only prohibits that species of falsehood which consists in acting the part of tale-bearers among the people but says neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor leviticus chapter nineteen verse sixteen both transgressions are distinctly prohibited indeed there can be no doubt that as in the previous commandment he prohibited cruelty and chastity and avarice so here he prohibits falsehood which consists of the two parts to which we have adverted by malignant or vicious detraction we sin against our neighbor's good name by lying sometimes even by casting a slur upon him we injure him in his estate it makes no difference whether you suppose that formal and judicial testimony is here intended or the ordinary testimony which is given in private conversation for we must always recur to the consideration that for each kind of transgression one species is set forth by way of example that to it the others may be referred and that the species chiefly selected is that in which the turpitude of the transgression is most apparent it seems proper however to extend it more generally to calumny and sinister insinuations by which our neighbors are unjustly aggrieved for falsehood in a court of justice is always accompanied with perjury but against perjury in so far as it profanes and violates the name of god there is a sufficient provision in the third commandment hence the legitimate observance of this precept consists in employing the tongue in the maintenance of truth so as to promote both the good name and the prosperity of our neighbor the equity of this is perfectly clear for if a good name is more precious than riches a man in being robbed of his good name is no less injured than if he were robbed of his goods while in the latter case false testimony is sometimes not less injurious than rapine committed by the hand forty eight and yet it is strange with what supine security men everywhere sin in this respect indeed very few are found who do not notoriously labor under this disease such is the envenomed delight we take both in prying into and exposing our neighbor's faults 
let us not imagine it is a sufficient excuse to say that on many occasions our statements are not false he who forbids us to defame our neighbor's reputation by falsehood desires us to keep it untarnished in so far as truth will permit though the commandment is only directed against falsehood it intimates that the preservation of our neighbor's good name is recommended it ought to be a sufficient inducement to us to guard our neighbor's good name that god takes an interest in it wherefore evil speaking in general is undoubtedly condemned moreover by evil speaking we understand not the rebuke which is administered with a view of correcting not accusation or judicial decision by which evil is sought to be remedied not public censure which tends to strike terror into other offenders not a disclosure made to those whose safety depends on being forewarned lest unawares they should be brought into danger but the odious crimination which springs from a malicious and petulant love of slander nay the commandment extends so far as to include that scurrilous affected urbanity instinct with invective by which the failings of others under an appearance of sportiveness are bitterly assailed as some are wont to do who court the praise of wit though it should call forth a blush or inflict a bitter pang by petulance of this description our brethren are sometimes grievously wounded but if we turn our eye to the lawgiver whose just authority extends over the ears and the mind as well as the tongue we cannot fail to perceive that eagerness to listen to slander and an unbecoming proneness to censorious judgments are here forbidden it were absurd to suppose that god hates the disease of evil speaking in the tongue and yet disapproves not of its malignity in the mind wherefore if the true fear and love of god dwell in us we must endeavour as far as is lawful and expedient and as far as charity admits neither to listen nor give utterance to bitter and acrimonious charges nor rashly entertain sinister suspicions as just interpreters of the words and the actions of other men let us candidly maintain the honour due to them by our judgment our ear and our tongue tenth commandment thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's house thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's wife nor his man-servant nor his maid-servant nor his ox nor his ass nor anything that is thy neighbour's forty nine the purport is since the lord would have the whole soul pervaded with love any feeling of an adverse nature must be banished from our minds the sum therefore will be that no thought be permitted to insinuate itself into our minds and inhale them with a noxious concupiscence tending to our neighbour's loss to this corresponds the contrary precept that everything which we conceive deliberate will or design be conjoined with the good and advantage of our neighbour but here it seems we are met with a great and perplexing difficulty for if it was correctly said above that under the words adultery and theft lust and an intention to injure and deceive are prohibited it may seem superfluous afterwards to employ a separate commandment to prohibit a covetous desire of our neighbour's goods the difficulty will easily be removed by distinguishing between design and covetousness design such as we have spoken of in the previous commandments is a deliberate consent of the will after passion has taken possession of the mind covetousness may exist without such deliberation and assent when the mind is only stimulated and tickled by vain and perverse objects 
as therefore the lord previously ordered that charity should regulate our wishes studies and actions so he now orders us to regulate the thoughts of the mind in the same way that none of them may be depraved and distorted so as to give the mind a contrary bent having forbidden us to turn and incline our mind to wrath hatred adultery theft and falsehood he now forbids us to give our thoughts the same direction fifty nor is such rectitude demanded without reason for who can deny the propriety of occupying all the powers of the mind with charity if it ceases to have charity for its aim who can question that it is deceased how comes it that so many desires of a nature hurtful to your brother enter your mind but just because disregarding him you think only of yourself were your mind wholly imbued with charity no portion of it would remain for the entrance of such thoughts in so far therefore as the mind is devoid of charity it must be under the influence of concupiscence some one will object that those fancies which casually rise up in the mind and forthwith vanish away cannot properly be condemned as concupiscences which have their seat in the heart i answer that the question here relates to a description of fancies which while they present themselves to our thoughts at the same time impress and stimulate the mind with cupidity since the mind never thinks of making some choice but the heart is excited and tends towards it god therefore commands a strong and ardent affection an affection not to be impeded by any portion however minute of concupiscence he requires a mind so admirably arranged as not to be prompted in the slightest degree contrary to the law of love lest you should imagine that this view is not supported by any grave authority i may mention that it was first suggested to me by augustine but although it was the intention of god to prohibit every kind of perverse desire he by way of example sets before us those objects which are generally regarded as most attractive thus leaving no room for cupidity of any kind by the interdiction of those things in which it especially delights and loves to revel such then is the second table of the law in which we are sufficiently instructed in the duties which we owe to man for the sake of god on a consideration of whose nature the whole system of love is founded it were vain therefore to inculcate the various duties taught in this table without placing your instructions on the fear and reverence to god as their proper foundation i need not tell the considerate reader that those who make two precepts out of the prohibition of covetousness perversely split one thing into two there is nothing in the repetition of the words thou shalt not covet the house being first put down its different parts are afterwards enumerated beginning with the wife and hence it is clear that the whole ought to be read consecutively as is properly done by the jews the sum of the whole commandment therefore is that whatever each individual possesses remain entire and secure not only from injury or the wish to injure but also from the slightest feeling of covetousness which can spring up in the mind fifty one it will not now be difficult to ascertain the general end contemplated by the whole law namely the fulfilment of righteousness that man may form his life on the model of the divine purity for therein god has so delineated his own character that any one exhibiting in action what is commanded would in some measure exhibit a living image of god 
wherefore moses when he wished to fix a summary of the whole in the memory of the israelites thus addressed them and now israel what does the lord thy god require of thee but to fear the lord thy god to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the lord thy god with all thy heart and with all thy soul to keep the commandments of the lord and his statutes which i command thee this day for thy good deuteronomy chapter ten verses twelve and thirteen and he ceased not to reiterate the same thing whenever he had occasion to mention the end of the law to this the doctrine of the law pays so much regard that it connects man by holiness of life with his god and as moses elsewhere expresses it deuteronomy chapter six verse five and chapter eleven verse thirteen and makes him cleave to him moreover this holiness of life is comprehended under the two heads above mentioned thou shalt love the lord thy god with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength and thy neighbor as thyself first our mind must be completely filled with love to god and then this love must forthwith flow out toward our neighbor this the apostle shows when he says the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience and of faith unfeigned first timothy chapter one verse five you see that conscience and faith unfeigned are placed at the head in other words true piety and that from this charity is derived it is a mistake then to suppose that merely the rudiments and first principles of righteousness are delivered in the law to form as it were a kind of introduction to good works and not to guide to the perfect performance of them for complete perfection nothing more can be required than is expressed in these passages of moses and paul how far pray would he wish to go who is not satisfied with the instruction which directs man to the fear of god to spiritual worship practical obedience in fine purity of conscience faith unfeigned and charity this confirms that interpretation of the law which searches out and finds in its precepts all the duties of piety and charity those who merely search for dry and meagre elements as if it taught the will of god only by halves by no means understand its end the apostle being witness fifty two as in giving a summary of the law christ and the apostles sometimes omit the first table very many fall into the mistake of supposing that their words apply to both tables in matthew christ calls judgment mercy and faith the weightier matters of the law i think it clear that by faith is here meant veracity towards man but in order to extend the words to the whole law some take it for piety towards god this is surely to no purpose for christ is speaking of those works by which a man ought to approve himself as just if we attend to this we will cease to wonder why elsewhere when asked by the young man what good thing shall i do that i may have eternal life he simply answers that he must keep the commandments thou shalt do no murder thou shalt not commit adultery thou shalt not steal thou shalt not bear false witness honour thy father and thy mother and thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself matthew chapter nineteen verses sixteen and eighteen for the obedience of the first table consisted almost entirely either in the internal affection of the heart or in ceremonies 
the affection of the heart was not visible and hypocrites were diligent in the observance of ceremonies but the works of charity were of such a nature as to be a solid attestation of righteousness the same thing occurs so frequently in the prophets that it must be familiar to every one who has any tolerable acquaintance with them for almost on every occasion when they exhort men to repentance omitting the first table they insist on faith judgment mercy and equity nor do they in this way omit the fear of god they only require a serious proof of it from its signs it is well known indeed that when they treat of the law they generally insist on the second table because therein the cultivation of righteousness and integrity is best manifested there is no occasion to quote passages every one can easily for himself perceive the truth of my observation fifty three is it then true you will ask that it is a more complete summary of righteousness to live innocently with men and piously towards god by no means but because no man as a matter of course observes charity in all respects unless he seriously fear god such observance is a proof of piety also to this we may add that the lord well knowing that none of our good deeds can reach him as the psalmist declares psalm chapter sixteen verse two does not demand from us duties towards himself but exercises us in good works towards our neighbor hence the apostle not without cause makes the whole perfection of the saints to consist in charity ephesians chapter three verse nineteen and colossians chapter three verse fourteen and in another passage he not improperly calls it the fulfilling of the law adding that he that loveth another has fulfilled the law romans chapter thirteen verse eight and again all the law is fulfilled in this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself galatians chapter five verse fourteen for this is the very thing which christ himself teaches when he says all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you do you even so to them for this is the law and the prophets matthew chapter seven verse twelve it is certain that in the law and the prophets faith and whatever pertains to the due worship of god holds the first place and that to this charity is made subordinate but our lord means that in the law the observance of justice and equity towards men is prescribed as the means which we are to employ in testifying a pious fear of god if we truly possess it fifty four let us therefore hold that our life will be framed in best accordance with the will of god and the requirements of his law when it is in every respect most advantageous to our brethren but in the whole law there is not one syllable which lays down a rule as to what man is to do or avoid for the advantage of his own carnal nature and indeed since men are naturally prone to excessive self-love which they always retain how great soever their departure from the truth may be there was no need of a law to inflame a love already existing in excess hence it is perfectly plain that the observance of the commandments consists not in the love of ourselves but in the love of god and our neighbor and that he leads the best and holiest life who as little as may be studies and lives for himself and that none lives worse and more unrighteously than he who studies and lives only for himself and seeks and thinks only of his own nay 
the better to express how strongly we should be inclined to love our neighbor the lord has made self-love as it were the standard there being no feeling in our nature of greater strength and vehemence the force of the expression ought to be carefully weighed for he does not as some sophists have stupidly dreamed assign the first place to self-love and the second to charity he rather transfers to others the love which we naturally feel for ourselves hence the apostle declares that charity seeketh not her own first corinthians chapter thirteen verse five nor is the argument worth a straw that the thing regulated must always be inferior to the rule the lord did not make self-love the rule as if love towards others was subordinate to it but whereas through natural pravity the feeling of love usually rests on ourselves he shows that it ought to diffuse itself in another direction that we should be prepared to do good to our neighbor with no less alacrity ardor and solicitude than to ourselves fifty five our saviour having shown in the parable of the samaritan luke chapter ten verse thirty six that the term neighbor comprehends the most remote stranger there is no reason for limiting the precept of love to our own connections i deny not that the closer the relation the more frequent our offices of kindness should be for the condition of humanity requires that there be more duties in common between those who are more nearly connected by the ties of relationship or friendship or neighborhood and this is done without any offence to god by whose providence we are in a manner impelled to do it but i say that the whole human race without exception are to be embraced with one feeling of charity that here there is no distinction of greek or barbarian worthy or unworthy friend or foe since all are to be viewed not in themselves but in god if we turn aside from this view there is no wonder that we entangle ourselves in error wherefore if we would hold the true course in love our first step must be to turn our eyes not to man the sight of whom might oftener produce hatred than love but to god who requires that the love which we bear to him be diffused among all mankind so that our fundamental principle must ever be let a man be what he may he is still to be loved because god is loved fifty six wherefore nothing could be more pestilential than the ignorance or wickedness of the schoolmen in converting the precepts respecting revenge and the love of enemies precepts which had formerly been delivered to all the jews and were then delivered universally to all christians into counsels which it was free to obey or disobey confining the necessary observance of them to the monks who were made more righteous than ordinary christians by the simple circumstance of voluntarily binding themselves to obey counsels the reason they assign for not receiving them as laws is that they seem too heavy and burdensome especially to christians who are under the law of grace have they indeed the hardihood to remodel the eternal law of god concerning the love of our neighbor is there a page of the law in which any such distinction exists or rather do we not meet in every page with commands which in the strictest terms require us to love our enemies what is meant by commanding us to feed our enemy if he is hungry to bring back his ox or his ass if we meet it going astray or help it up if we see it lying under its burden proverbs chapter twenty five verse twenty one 
and exodus chapter twenty three verse four shall we show kindness to cattle for man's sake and have no feeling of goodwill to himself what is not the word of the lord eternally true vengeance is mine i will repay deuteronomy chapter thirty two verse thirty five this is elsewhere more explicitly stated thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people leviticus chapter nineteen verse eighteen let them either erase these passages from the law or let them acknowledge the lord as a lawgiver not falsely feign him to be merely a counsellor fifty seven and what pray is meant by the following passage which they have dared to insult with this absurd gloss love your enemies bless them that curse you do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the children of your father which is in heaven matthew chapter five verses forty four and forty five who does not here concur in the reasoning of chrysostom that the nature of the motive makes it plain that these are not exhortations but precepts for what is left to us if we are excluded from the number of the children of god according to the schoolmen monks alone will be the children of our father in heaven monks alone will dare to invoke god as their father and in the meantime how will it fare with the church by the same rule she will be confined to heathens and publicans for our saviour says if you love them which love you what reward have you do not even the publicans the same it will truly be well with us if we are left only the name of christians while we are deprived of the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven nor is the argument of augustine less forcible when the lord forbids adultery he forbids it in regard to the wife of a foe not less than the wife of a friend when he forbids theft he does not allow stealing of any description whether from a friend or an enemy now these two commandments thou shalt not steal thou shalt not commit adultery paul brings under the rule of love nay he says that they are briefly comprehended in this saying thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself romans chapter thirteen verse nine therefore paul must either be a false interpreter of the law or we must necessarily conclude that under this precept we are bound to love our enemies just as our friends those then show themselves to be in truth the children of satan who thus licentiously shake off a yoke common to the children of god it may be doubted whether in promulgating this dogma they have displayed greater stupidity or impudence there is no ancient writer who does not hold it as certain that these are pure precepts it was not even doubted in the age of gregory as is plain from his decided assertion for he holds it to be incontrovertible that they are precepts and how stupidly they argue the burdens say they were too difficult for christians to hear as if anything could be imagined more difficult than to love the lord with all the heart and soul and strength compared with this law there is none which may not seem easy whether it be to love our enemy or to banish every feeling of revenge from our minds to our weakness indeed everything even to the minutest detail of the law is arduous and difficult in the lord we have strength it is his to give what he orders and to order what he wills that christians are under the law of grace means not that they are to wander unrestrained without law 
but that they are engrafted into christ by whose grace they are freed from the curse of the law and by whose spirit they have the law written in their hearts this grace paul has termed but not in the proper sense of the term a law alluding to the law of god with which he was contrasting it the schoolmen laying hold of the term law make it the groundwork of their vain speculations fifty eight the same must be said of their application of the term venial sin both to the hidden impiety which violates the first table and the direct transgression of the last commandment of the second table they define venial sin to be desire unaccompanied with deliberate assent and not remaining long in the heart but i maintain that it cannot even enter the heart unless through a want of those things which are required in the law we are forbidden to have strange gods when the mind under the influence of distrust looks elsewhere or is seized with some sudden desire to transfer its blessedness to some other quarter whence are these movements however evanescent but just because there is some empty corner in the soul to receive such temptations and not to lengthen out the discussion there is a precept to love god with the whole heart and mind and soul and therefore if all the powers of the soul are not directed to the love of god there is a departure from the obedience of the law because those internal enemies which rise up against the dominion of god and countermand his edicts prove that his throne is not well established in our consciences it has been shown that the last commandment goes to this extent has some undue longing sprung up in our mind then we are chargeable with covetousness and stand convicted as transgressors of the law for the law forbids us not only to meditate and plan our neighbor's laws but to be stimulated and inflamed with covetousness but every transgression of the law lays us under the curse and therefore even the slightest desires cannot be exempted from the fatal sentence in weighing our sins says augustine let us not use a deceitful balance weighing at our own discretion what we will and how we will calling this heavy and that light but let us use the divine balance of the holy scriptures as taken from the treasury of the lord and by it weigh every offence nay not weigh but rather recognize what has been already weighed by the lord and what saith the scripture certainly when paul says that the wages of sin is death romans chapter six verse twenty three he shows that he knew nothing of this vile distinction as we are but too prone to hypocrisy there was very little occasion for this sop to soothe our torpid consciences fifty nine i wish they would consider what our saviour meant when he said whosoever shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven matthew chapter five verse nineteen are they not of this number when they presume to extenuate the transgression of the law as if it were unworthy of death the proper course had been to consider not simply what is commanded but who it is that commands because every least transgression of his law derogates from his authority do they count it a small matter to insult the majesty of god in any one respect again since god has explained his will in the law everything contrary to the law is displeasing to him will they feign that the wrath of god is so disarmed that the punishment of death will not forthwith follow upon it 
he has declared plainly if they could be induced to listen to his voice instead of darkening his clear truth by their insipid subtleties the soul that sinneth it shall die ezekiel chapter eighteen verse twenty again in the passage lately quoted the wages of sin is death what these men acknowledge to be sin because they are unable to deny it they contend is not mortal having already indulged this madness too long let them learn to repent or if they persist in their infatuation taking no further notice of them let the children of god remember that all sin is mortal because it is rebellion against the will of god and necessarily provokes his anger and because it is a violation of the law against every violation of which without exception the judgment of god has been pronounced the faults of the saints are indeed venial not however in their own nature but because through the mercy of god they obtain pardon End of section 18 recording by shanna Sayre, fresno california